Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Creatures. I'm Tommy. I'm today joined by... Uh, Jennifer Grab. Great to have you here. I mean, we've been talking about this for a while now. Now it's actually the episode recording. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm at the end of what's been a year of developing uh, this really large project with Tommy. And um, it feels really good to kind of be uh, just at the finish line and uh, wrapping up what's been a lot of work and effort and time. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to, to see it to the finish. Yeah, I want to have a deep dive to your full down media experience. But um, before that, um, can you share the listeners like, where do you come from and what is your background and um, what actually brought you to um, to do uh, such fantastic projects at Aldo? Yeah, um, so I'm Jen and I'm from Lexington, Kentucky. And, um, and early on in my career, I started working for this film production agency that specialized in making films for museums. And there was a really kind of um, interesting trend that started to emerge in museum culture where we start to see all these exhibits with um, more augmented reality, virtuality, and kind of these new media uh, interpretations, which are kind of extending film. And so I was really interested in this kind of topic of expanded cinema and what can we do to make film feel more immersive and um, feel more interactive. So that brought me here to Alto in the new media department where they have some fantastic courses and teachers and resources in order to explore these like, new emerging media technologies. Um, <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, hey, you mentioned, um, I mean, immersion, it's, uh, it's uh, one of the debatable, debatable terms. So uh, what is it? Can you share the listeners? Like, what does it mean? And and of course, I mean, as we have talked, it means so many different things. But what is perhaps your f- favorite definition? Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely kind of a wide range of definitions, and um, one is taking an image and turning it into this kind of three dimensional um, environment where you kind of lose a boundary between yourself and the image where you feel that you yourself are a part of this uh, virtual imagery that you're in. And I really like this disillusion of boundary between what's virtual and what's not virtual. And um, it's that kind of boundary that I, I really hope to be experimenting more in. Um, and then there's a lot of talk about immersion being a feeling of motion that happens to you to where even though you're sitting still, you feel that you're flying or you feel that you're really in the space and um, kind of a, a kind of big part of the research we were doing was looking at what happens when you have movement on your peripheries. There's this thing that's vection that happens where you can really feel that you are inside of a space as long as there's movement that's happening kind of in the corners of your eyes. It can make you feel like you're going deeper or you're following the motion that the imagery is taking you in. And so that's kind of been an exciting um, experience to be able to not have this flat screen where you can really see the frame, but to kind of break this boundary of the frame and uh, see how image affects you differently. See how the en- environment of watching a film affects you differently um, when you actually feel that you're inside of it. 
Mm. You mentioned movement as one of the uh, keys to to that you feel this immersion, but uh, are there perhaps some other things that are, I don't know, not that obvious for many listeners that help you to uh, design basically a vehicle to to experience immersion? Yeah, I think um, one of the large things for designing immersive experiences is kind of narrating the 360 gaze. So when... Um, it's not really enough just that you have content that's moving um, because oftentimes with 360 environments, you can feel this pressure. Like, do I look behind me? Do I look at the motion? Do I look in front of me? And um, that's kind of like maybe as a designer, something to take into consideration that you don't take into consideration when watching 2D when it's all in the frame is where are you consciously putting um, objects inside of your scene so that people are feeling some comfort that they get the narrative cues that they need in order to make meaning of the space um, and that they're able to kind of direct their gaze at what they feel like is most important and that um, it's not ambiguous. So that was probably one of the major kind of learning uh, challenges and something that I wasn't really aware of before was how do we uh, properly utilize an immersive space so that we can see um, all around us, but also make it so that it doesn't promote this anxiety of, oh, do I miss something if it's directly behind me? Or am I supposed to be looking this way or that way? And um, giving enough autonomy for the uh, visitor to feel that they are in control of their gaze, um, but also make them feel comforted that um, they are getting the important narrative cues. Mm-hmm. So what are those narrative cues? Is it like uh, that there is some some place that makes sense that people can kind of, they understand the place, right? And then some movement, some time, but what else? Yeah, so when you're designing virtual experiences or really any sort of media experience. Um, you know, oftentimes as artists and curators, you have your objectives. So at the end of this experience, I want the audience to take this away, or I'd like to kind of um, have them feel a certain way, or, you know, with art, it can be a little bit different that you'd want the audience to make that up. But generally we might have some communication goals that we would like to achieve. And so to make sure that happens Um, we need to make sure that the audience is kind of directed to look at these um, cues that will lead them to to understand the narrative in a really comfortable way. And so this can be achieved by um, creating contrast as you would in film. So a lot of practices within immersive media production come from film production. And we see that when you have something that is really large in scale compared to if everything around it is very small, your eye is drawn to that. If something is in motion and everything else is still, your eyes are drawn to the motion. So it's creating these moments of contrast um, and really highlighting specific ab- aspects of the composition to where the audience feels like, okay, that is kind of in this hierarchy of this hierarchy of uh, visuals. This is what is most important. Um, And so when you're in a 360 environment, it can be really interesting to play with that where you can move that really important thing kind of around the screen so that people get to explore this space um, in a way that is uh, independent, but also guided in a sense. Mm-hmm. So controlling the perception, but at the same time uh, creating an illusion that that they are free to look at wherever they want to look at. Yeah, and that there there should still be some elements maybe around that aren't exactly, but that maybe they're just not as important or um, they kind of complement the main thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that has been uh, a kind of a really exciting and experimental part of the research, getting to create all these compositions and the understanding um, 
yeah, contrast in a completely new light when compared to making two-dimensional mm-hmm. films and animation. We are kind of getting closer to it, but, uh, but I can you share with the listeners about your full dome uh, media experience? Like, what is it basically? Well, how does it work? And how also perhaps what led you to uh, design it? Yeah, so everything that we've been talking about so far has um, kind of come from this year-long experiment that um, I've been doing as a part of the Alto online learning team um, for my master's thesis at Alto University. And um, for this uh, project, I created a full-dome media environment. And um, kind of the reason for this was wanting to explore expanded cinema and kind of get out of the frame and really see how it feels feels to um, be inside a kind of a filmic environment. And so I built a five meter full dome, um, which if anyone has ever been to a planetarium, it's a really small scale kind of DIY version of that, where it's this half sphere that sits on the ground and there's three projectors that have seamless blending um, so that the dome is filled with, uh, so that the dome is filled with projection. And for my experiment, I was kind of doing a half dome almost where only half of the environment is uh, full of projection. And that helps a little bit with this um, issue of the gaze where people kind of can have anxiety if they have to turn around. And sometimes it can feel a lot more comfortable just to sit or lay down in the space and be able to see it um, just by turning your head and not having to actually move your body fully around. Um, so yeah, full dome versus half dome is, is kind of up for debate, but um the dome itself is a geodesic dome, uh, which affords the kind of the most space and most surface area with the least amount of construction. And um, as a sculptural element, it looks really nice and, and clean. And um, it's the canvas for a media experience, which I have created uh, that um, maybe. Yeah. A- yeah. You had the uh, three um, pieces of art there to experience, right? So you actually created a, um, I mean, I tested it and I, it's just fantastic. I, I got a, got a really immersive experience, uh, in, by, by not just watching, uh, the piece of art. I mean, of course, the interpretations of those, but, uh, but I really experiencing those way deeper than I have ever. I mean, for example, I mean, perhaps can you share us a bit more about your full media, um, environment, dome environment, uh, well, what kind of artists uh, are you um, exhibiting there? Yeah, so the media that goes in the full dome, um, how it's presented is the visitor comes into the dome and they see three paintings floating inside of the space. And um, these three paintings are made by Hakasai, Rousseau, and Monet. And the visitor can select a painting from um, a user interface that's located on an iPhone. And once I select the painting, it dissolves into this expansive tableau of uh, all of the artist's work kind of composited and animated together. So we see various scenes of um, Hakusai's uh, Japanese landscapes um, kind of composited and animated. And then we see Monet's water, lily, forest, seaside uh scenes, um, as well as uh, in Rousseau's, we go deep into the jungle where he created these really colorful um, depictions of different jungle scenes and animals and humans. Um, And so these paintings all provide really interesting um, jumping off points from a 
from a narrative and a visual standpoint to um, to really make the scenes come alive and make them feel that okay, we're actually in Rousseau's jungle um, or actually kind of laying down by the by the waterside in Monet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, when I lived in Paris, I went to uh, museums having Claude Monet's uh, water lilies. I think I think it's uh, Monsieur, Monsieur Dorincheri. I think. So anyway, so uh, I spent hours and hours there just by, I mean, just experiencing them uh, alone or sometimes with friends and uh, talking about the paintings and uh, and uh, just basically experienced those. So it was really beautiful to kind of experience that again. But as you said, even more, I felt, I mean, it was really more, perhaps closer to what the artist uh, intended at the, at the first place I mean, when he or she uh, originally uh, experienced it. Yeah, that, that was something I got back from the user feedback as well, which was really encouraging to hear, was that people, most of the paintings that are used in the um, media presentation are really famous paintings that people have seen before. And um, and a lot of them said that they felt uh, sort of a connection to the painting or it made them think about the painting in a different way than they had when they previously saw it, um, which was really interesting. And a lot of them brought up that they could actually understand the space that Monet was sitting in and in the garden and that it kind of gave them, it asked deeper questions of them than maybe if they had just seen it on a, like kind of an unguided gallery visit, which, um, which I think is a great thing for new media that it brings up new questions and ideas about authorship and, and space. And so it was, um, yeah, really, really good feedback so far. Mm-hmm. Could it be, or could it be used for learning? I mean, kind of wider, in a wider sense, uh, perhaps for fine arts or basically anything? Yeah, so actually the kind of the birth of um, the full dome is, is comes from the planetarium. And the planetarium is really directly related to education. It's most of its programming is funded and is made towards education. And that's because um, immersive environments have been proven to have... Um, to help humans like make better sense of spatial dimensions. So that's like also why a lot of uh, space related programming is made for planetariums is because it allows us to visualize uh, spatial relationships and scale relationships a lot clearer. And um, there's really good research on it being beneficial for um, certain like, data visualizations that people are able to recall and remember um, media presented in a full dome or planetarium environment that we're relating to um, spatia and kind of, large-scale data visualizations. And um, also because of the screen and the size, there's an idea that it's more memorable in certain regards, especially when there's a facilitator that's kind of guiding the experience. Um, and so a lot of times like when we see things on a, a big screen and they're all around us, they have the benefit of, from education purposes, um, to, to really kind of stick in our memory and help us to remember and experience uh, the the information more clearly so it's definitely a very um well-researched field is the the um benefits of the full dome for education um i think a lot of it maybe more now is the question of how to develop content that really um is well suited for the full dome environment and for learners and i think um, that's a really interesting field of research Mm -hmm. what is the role of soundtrack basically for it I mean, music, I, I mean, I know that uh, in your full dome environment, the music plays a great role, but um, how do you see it? Yeah, I think just like traditional cinema, that um, 
the audio and the sound plays such an important role in guiding the narrative and emotions. And it's a whole field of research is a 360 spatial audio production. And there's a lot of really interesting things um, coming into play now where people are able to kind of trigger different animations in 3D space or have certain speakers set up to where um, certain sounds are relating to certain images that are happening in one section of the dome, whereas in another uh, section of the dome, you could have another speaker that correlates to that and that can create an even more intense experiential spatial presentation. Um, because especially when it comes to maybe more like cinematic productions, uh, yeah, audio is extremely necessary for providing that um, emotional and narrative cues and guides. So um, right now for my project, we just had stereo speakers, but I would love like in a new iteration for uh, to be able to work with a sound designer to create some 360 degree mm-hmm. spatial audio. Mm-hmm. How do you think, um, because I mean, now um, a lot of industry um, making maps, they are moving to 3D maps. So could full dome environment be, um, I don't know, new way to experience maps as well? Like all these 3D maps where you could, I don't know, zoom in, zoom out and see and understand how cities work. I don't know, perhaps for urban planners, obviously, but um basically for any of us, especially in these remote times, virtual times, pandemic times, when we cannot go to those cities. Yeah, I think that there is um, really a wide range of of media material that um, is really successful in a full dome environment. And one of those is definitely things that are showing us large spaces and the ability also for the full dome to really convincingly achieve this 3D environment, zoom in, zoom out effect, where if you watch a go through a, a 3D environment on your desktop, you can still really see that you're in a 2D environment. And you're just navigating through this. Whereas in a full dome, when you're navigating through a 3D environment, it actually feels that you're inside that environment and that you're moving with it and walking with it. And so, um, you know, they have a lot of full domes right now that are used for kind of flight simulations or um, to have this really kind of overarching view. And you actually feel like you're flying with the camera. And so anything that is using this um, uh, camera effect to place us in a new um, environment or scene, especially within kind of 3D and virtual environments, works really well in a full dome. Mm-hmm. Um, you have mentioned planetariums uh, often. So um, can you walk us through um, kind of the history or some of the main points, like, like I don't know, turning points uh, in making of them and, and what what do we know now that we perhaps didn't know I don't know 100 years ago yeah so um the full dome is a uh, it's kind of an offshoot of the planetarium and uh, planetariums were uh, created in Germany um, by this Zeiss company and uh, the first planetarium ever created was a geodesic dome similar to uh, what I've been making now and they had a mechanical projector with tiny holes cut out in um, these metal plates that uh, replicated the night sky precisely and were able to kind of mechanically rotate these plates so that it would show as it was in the sky. And it was this really profound invention that drew a lot of uh, international representatives to Gina in um, Germany where it was invented. And so you slowly see this company selling off projectors to these big international cities and um, as the technology became a little bit more affordable and produced, um, we start to see them popping up in 
Chicago and Austria and, um, and really a big turning point for the production came during the uh, space race between the Soviet Union and the United States. And during that time, uh, President Eisenhower, his advisory council, um, was really prioritizing space-related education. And this also kind of shows how education was just really a fundamental building block for planetarium production. Um, because in the in the 60s, a lot of funding went into the production of planetariums. I think 700 were built um, from these uh, federal grant fundings. And so there was a kind of a huge boom and that kind of took off as IMAX cinema and projectors developed even further to where you can have you know, hundreds of projectors in a room with these giant screens, um, really creating um, a completely unique and this hemispherical space, which really matches how we as humans see um, and perceive space ourselves. And so, um, and from that, um, kind of the role of the planetarium, all these kind of offshoots, um, like the full dome and these like kind of even like smaller spherical projector spaces that people will use for gaming um, have emerged. And um, while planetariums, you know, cost upwards of millions, um, I think a lot of educational universities are trying to adopt it on a smaller scale. And that's where the full dome comes into place Um, for full domes right now. You can expect to spend between 10,000 for smaller inflatable domes to hundreds of thousands for kind of larger scales. And so, um, it's been really interesting to see how far we can get with with our budget and um, what kind of degrees of immersion are even possible with the smaller scale domes. Mm-hmm. It's been fantastic to see them like I don't know popping up uh, everywhere in Europe and world worldwide. I don't know what is your dream. Should we have or could we have one hundred of those in I don't know few years around the world? Yeah, I definitely after after going through the process of building one, it's. The end result, it got me really excited about the possibility of full domes. And I think that there's a lot of creators and a lot of visitors that would um, that would really in, enjoy the, the proliferation of this media. So it would be amazing to get to sync up domes in different cities and be able to um, really kind of share immersive experiences with, with other people. Um, that's kind of a, a large point of this project as well was uh, when we look at immersive virtual environments, uh, the reality headsets are, are a big part of that and the um, head-mounted displays. And um, one thing that's noted is that experience can be so isolating that um, you have the headset on and you kind of immediately like feel that you're alone in the space. It's just you. Whereas full domes offer us to kind of be together with other people inside of them. And then if you take that a degree further and you have domes in different spaces um, with people that are also inside of them and that if there was like some way that you could um, kind of share that experience together, uh, it would be really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, yeah, we're all looking for different ways to connect virtually, especially during these times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it would be really kind of an interesting path of research to see how it feels to um, mm-hmm. interact virtually in full-time environments mm-hmm. uh, across, like in different cities. Mm-hmm. Social virtual reality, collaboration space, co-creation space. Just amazing um, amount of opportunity. Hey, one thing I want to ask you. Um, I mean, you are a digital artist, uh, media artist, if you like. Um, so can you uh, share us, um, listeners, um, how do you start a new project? I mean, do you do you immediately see kind of, I don't know, movie, 
and then you try to create a kind of 3D version of that movie or 2D version of that movie. Um, or, uh, or do you write it? How do you, how do you uh, start? Um, I think with every project, it's a really iterative process where I look at, like, f first of all, I don't even think about what media I want to use. I think about like, what is my story? What are my uh, objectives that I want to communicate to the audience? And really try to think about that before anything else. And then once I have an idea of, okay, this is, this is what I want to tell. This is, then it comes to the question of how do you tell it? And that's where media offers like a, or new media especially offers a really interesting way to tell narratives. And I think it's, can be just really, um, uh, kind of a, a nice challenge just to kind of see like, okay, this is my story. Which one of these can best, best suit it? And how can I utilize that environment to tell the story in a way that I, I wouldn't versus using film or, um, print or whatever uh, traditional medium there could be. Um, and so I think that also there's a lot of like kind of prototyping and doing demos and exploring uh, different uh, processes. Um, yeah, probably a lot of, a lot of failures too. <laughs> you know, you try mm. one medium and it doesn't exactly uh, hold up to your expectations or um, I look at a lot of other artists and see what they're making and try to be continually inspired by um, by things that, you know, other people are doing and trying to dream about how I could make that my own. And, um, and yeah, I think, um, I've been, I've been really, uh, fortunate here at Alta University. I think they have really fantastic courses, especially within the kind of the arts and new media department for developing these new ways of communicating and telling stories and utilizing medias that, um, Uh, that I wouldn't have, have thought of before. So I definitely owe a lot of my kind of recent research to my to my education here. Excellent to hear. Hey, I wanted to ask you, um, how do you um, get feedback about the, or I mean, uh, how do you see, because I mean, I, I, if, I, if I listen to you, uh, kind of you think that it should communicate, right? So you want to tell a story that actually communicates. So how do you involve the, um, I mean, the, audience at different stages or is it like only at the end or is it like iterative iterative process? Yeah, I think it depends on on the project, but you definitely want to let other people in as soon as possible to to see and get feedback. And even if it's just my friends or uh, who's ever around at the time, just grabbing them in and saying like, hey, what do you think? And just surrounding yourself with people that are honest and that will um, kind of give you a really straight answer is really important when making anything. So I've been lucky enough to find find those people um, that have been able to support me throughout the project and throughout my, my studies at Alto. And um, yeah, I think it's essential for, for all creating. Mm -hmm. Communicate, communicate, communicate all the time iteratively and, uh, and also be ready to get feedback. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, you get feedback and sometimes it's the kind of, I mean, they point out some issues and... Right. Yeah, and I think like that's honestly when um, that is allows you the opportunity to make it better. Like I, I really appreciate when I can have that um, kind of positive criticism or you know the challenges because I think it's really challenging as an artist. Like you have you spend so much time kind of in the idea and what you're doing, but are you actually showing that to other people? And um, it's not anything personal. It's something that um, it's an opportunity. Okay, this is how I can make my idea more more understood and. Mm -hmm. um, And so, yeah, finding those really honest people. <laughs> I really <laughs> like you, you use uh, 
the word appreciation a lot. I know it. Um, and I really, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, it's not always you hear people saying that they appreciate feedback, right? But it's just awesome. Yeah, I think um, you can like look for like uh, opportunities rather than as it being criticism. Like it's it's a good, it's very necessary, especially maybe in the world of new media where people aren't open to, if it's something they're seeing for the first time, they're probably going to have questions or they're not going to be as comfortable as they would if they're kind of doing something which they're really um, familiar with. And so I think that, uh, yeah, projects and mediums that promote questions is, is really exciting, but um you also have to be kind of ready to answer those. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, um, how did you learn that mindset? Because I mean, uh, is there something like a turning point perhaps in your life or a career, something that made you think differently, perhaps to learn a mindset of, well, appreciation or creativity? I mean, anything basically. Um, I would think that... Um, Probably the biggest turning point in my career was um, working um, at Donald Lawrence Productions, which is where I was working um, at this film company. And my um, the director Donna um, really changed my view on on uh, storytelling, and that that comes first. Um, and I think that so much times with new media, we get lost in the latest tech or the latest updates, and we just like want to make something that looks cool for the sake of it looking or feeling cool and new. Um, but for me, I really appreciate when something makes me really reflect and really feel that I am a part of the story, that I understand the story and that this story is uh, also my own. Um, and so that's something that I think uh, I've, I've seen me navigating more to more towards is even though I come from a traditional fine arts background where a story wasn't always really important. Um, I've, kind of uh tried to slowly um think about how how narrative uh can be evolved and uh incorporated into these like new filmic practices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but is it um i mean that's that's super interesting because i'm i'm thinking about narratives i mean one essential point is there of course that the audience or one one person from the audience at the time um can actually think like she or he would be part of the story somehow can i don't know perhaps understand one of the characters or more of the characters hate their actions how do you think we can answer it in this complex world where people have i mean it's a global of course uh community that we have but uh but still so many local i mean differences cultures habits um i don't know viewpoints, bubbles, social media bubbles. How do you, how do you answer it? Or is it even um, a target to share the narrative to everybody? Yeah, I think that, um, especially maybe like in a world where we're like inundated with media that is just meant for us to consume, that we're really yearning for people to actually tell us something real, tell us a story that they've experienced, they've felt. Um, and and that can make our own story reflection of it that much more clear. And especially, you know, uh, allowing voices from different backgrounds and different stories to be told is really vital. And, um, and yeah, I, like, I, I want to hear everyone's story. <laughs> like yeah, I, yeah. I, I would, I'd hope that there can be opportunities in space for 
and more stories to be shared and environments that we can all feel them really personally and understand each other better. So instead of trying to get everything into one single story, let's have diverse stories. I mean, many, many stories, different viewpoints told by different, I don't know, artists, different orders. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and yeah, and how we can use new media to facilitate like those diverse voices is a really interesting question that, um, that I think there are definitely some answers to, especially with all of the ways in which we're communicating digitally. It's opened up for us to have access to the globe in a way that is unimaginable 20 years ago. So it's, it's an exciting time to be able to, to think like, okay, I can like, um, I can have access to to voices and to people that I couldn't have imagined before. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about which, um, what did you learn online last time? Or by the, by the way, wherever it can be also virtual reality, augmented reality, or through a book or a conversation. What was the last thing I learned online? Yeah, the last thing you learned, perhaps anything or online, if it was online, I don't know, something. Oh my gosh, I feel like that's it's been half of my studies. <laughs> what, what what isn't online now? <laughs> I have I, I have like a if you look at my history, I think it's all like LinkedIn tutorials, like YouTube, how to like move this key for After Effects, like mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which poses like a really interesting question for universities. Um, if if there's so much material readily available online, what is the benefit of doing things in person and um, Especially during the COVID, we're seeing that a lot of the material has to be moved online. And how do you do that effectively? What are the benefits of of being in person versus learning online? And um, yeah, it raises really interesting questions. I know that as somebody that has like spent the last six months primarily just learning everything from online, it, it can be really exhausting, and you spend a lot of time searching and looking at tutorials and videos that aren't exactly what you're looking for, and so. Uh, Yeah, maybe if there was some way to better curate or understand um, that that could be like kind of a position that universities are in now is how um, how do we move move things virtually in a way that best facilitates like, the learning still. It's definitely, I think, something that we're all facing now. Mm-hmm. How to facilitate, how to orchestrate perhaps the learning, right? How to curate different materials and not, and admit that we cannot make all the materials ourselves. I mean, it's it's, I mean, totally impossible in this world. Yeah, there, there, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a big task that this has brought on. But um, I think that for a lot of times, education has remained rather stagnant. That we were kind of using the same teacher board presentation that we were using in the '60s. So, in a way, I think that this has really caused people to think about: okay, we do have all this digital technology. How do we maximize and utilize that more to take? Um, to and to take a less away from this physical interaction space and there's some things that education i think will always like benefit from being in person I think we're all feeling that a lot right now mm-hmm. there's also some ways that we've been generally education has been ignoring um media that we can incorporate it mm-hmm. and i think some people are finding that okay there were things that we had to come in person for that actually they can be replaced rather easily with with online um measures so It'll be really interesting to see at the end of this how the kind of how virtual education really changes in this next two years. I think it's going to be pretty pretty dramatic. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's? I mean, I mean, I, I, I when I listen to you, uh, it sounds like um, 
like even if after COVID we can kind of get back to normal, but whether we actually even want to get back to, I mean, exactly same kind of, I don't know, perhaps lecture style, lecture style teaching that as, as nature of the courses anyway, so forth before COVID. Yeah, I think that um, it'll be really interesting to see how different universities deal that. I it would be hard. I don't. I I I'm not um again not a professional in that in that field. But as like as as a student, um, it would. I, I don't think that we're going to go back to where we were at before, and so um, it'll be really interesting to see how these different uh, virtual technologies and communications evolve with our need for them to evolve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, how do you see, um, we already touched a bit uh, about the future of learning, but um, but uh, if we go even further, I don't know, 2030 or 2035, how do you see it? I mean, how, if you, uh, if you imagine it, like how, how do you see it? Mm-hmm. So I've been seeing these kind of different schools pop up where there's actually no professor. They have a, a really like kind of this um, curriculum that's very open and gives you kind of different paths of learning, but that you're responsible for um, kind of taking on the, like they'll give you certain challenges or assignments that you meet and they'll give you some materials, but um, it's a little bit more independent based. And I think um, that that can often be a lot more successful than Um, kind of a teacher telling you this is what you know like need to know this is what you'll be tested on and graded on um i would like to think that education would turn more towards um promoting individual desires and curiosities like for the individual person and using those as um a signpost or as as kind of a, this more of like a roadmap approach where um you know the person wants to become say a visual effects designer. And so you give them certain tasks or challenges that would iteratively build up their skills and allow them to become that in a really practical way. Um, and also like giving, definitely giving theory and history. And that's all very important as well. But um, I think more independence and less, uh, less structure and um, probably like this uh, less of a, you're the teacher, I'm the student, whereas more of we're all learning together, I think is different mm. trends or themes that I would see happening in education because what that's already happening with websites and with Google, you can Google anything you want to know. Yeah. You don't necessarily need that um, somebody to tell you exactly what you need to know because they can't, there's not a professor that can tell you this is exactly what will be happening in your field mm. of expertise or research. So um, teaching people how to learn rather than what to learn, I think could, mm. is where the future of education could be going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is so many, all these conversation forums. I mean, basic discussion forums, you can, I mean, perhaps uh, better to um, learn how to learn, I don't know, to use those and uh, engage with other people, even if they are in another another place in the world. Uh, that's uh, that's definitely a great, great vision. This has been an awesome discussion, conversation. Thanks so much, Jen. Hey, one, one th- last thing um, I would like to ask you, I mean, as you know, podcast is, our podcast is cloud reachers. So it's kind of reaching out clouds, reaching out online, perhaps, I don't know, some dreams and uh, then making it reality. So in your own field, um, who could be um, this kind of cloud reacher? I don't know, a person or a university unit, company, 
project? Um, I guess some new media artists that I'm looking to right now is kind of like these shining beacons of of really utilizing technology in a, in a really unique way. Um, one would be, I think it's Adrian and Claire, and they're a duo out of France, and they just make these amazing um, immersive virtual environments that are um, really incredible. If people can look at them online, it's probably seeing them is a lot better than me explaining them. Um, but that are just kind of continually pushing the boundaries between virtual environments and real environments and doing these interactive projections that um, are just visually mind-blowing. Uh, Team Lab out of um, Japan is also a really interesting, so I think it's a 500-person collaborative where they make these um, interactive projected environments that um, on really large epic scales and kind of blend that boundary between the visitor and the virtual presentation. Um, so yeah, definitely check those guys out. Yeah, uh, we can perhaps we can link to those um, in the description of the podcast. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Hey, thanks so much, Jen. I mean, this was just magnificent. I mean, conversation. I learned so much. Thanks for joining. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, hey, I mean, episodes have to end, and now we we finish up this episode. Uh, stay tuned for next episodes. I'm Tommy Kaupinen. This was Cloud Reacher's podcast. Stay tuned. Ciao.